Uh, last week, I shared a little bit on the story of the Good Samaritan. And I was sharing with how, you know, in our world today, as dark as it's getting, it sometimes seems like it's hopeless and you wonder what we can do. And I tried to stress that there is something we can do as we impact even one life at a time through showing the compassion and love of Christ, that we can make a difference, one person at a time, if that's all it can be. But really, the only way that we can show that love of Christ and the compassion of Christ is to make sure that we are in an intimate relationship with Christ. It's hard to minister out of an empty tank. It's hard to share the love of Jesus if the love of Jesus isn't really real and overflowing in our life. And to do that in our culture today, to to get to that place where we have that kind of relationship, where we feel totally connected to Jesus during the day, every day, is really, really hard. In our world today, it takes an intentional commitment to do that. It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen as we get that from somebody that's near us or around us that's more spiritual. We sometimes think, gee, if we just get close to them by osmosis, it's going to move into us. It doesn't work that way. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of work, and it's really, really hard in in our culture. Look at the pace of your life. As I stand up here and encourage you to find more time for God in your life, you're looking at, gee whiz, where? When am I going to find the time? I find myself struggling with the same thing. Do we have the time? Not unless we make it. Look at our culture. The culture that's around us is like a sponge sucking spiritual life out of us. It's getting darker and darker every day. So it's making it harder and harder to be committed. And on top of that, our busyness and our culture, we have an enemy, Satan, a spiritual enemy, who wants to draw us away from God. See, the enemy knows some things that we maybe lose track of. One is that God created all of us to bring Him honor and glory. He created us that we could have intimate fellowship with Him. He created us that we might worship Him, knowing that as we worship Him, we are meeting this need in our life that brings great blessing. And Satan knows all that, and he wants to destroy that, distract us. You know, once we're saved, once we've accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, you know, we are eternally saved and going to spend eternity in heaven with God. But we're not there yet. We're here. And we're to be ambassadors for Christ. We're to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We're to minister his love and compassion. We're to be his representative on earth. And it's hard to do that if we don't know him well. And it takes more than just once in a great while. How do we live our lives that the love of Christ comes before all else? Doesn't that sound nice? In my life, the love of Christ becomes before all else. Most of us, I think, would say yes to that. But if we were asked the question, what's the most important thing in your life? What would you say? That's a tough one. You might say just that. That's a tough one. You might say my spouse, my husband or my wife. You might say my kids, my children, my family. You might say your job might say God. And you might just say, God, I don't know. I can't really nail down one thing. 
Then ask yourself, what is it that becomes before all else? What is on the top of my priority list? What's up there? I'm going to borrow some information, and actually even the title of my sermon this morning, Having a Rule of Life, from a book written by Peter Scazzaro that a number of people are looking through and going through. If you've gotten to the last chapter in that book, chapter 10, he talks about having a rule of life. And I'm also going to borrow a metaphor that he used in part of my sermon to give him the credit that he deserves. The book is Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he talks about having a rule of life. And what he's talking about there is is have a structure to our life that consists of spiritual practices and disciplines that are a normal part of every day of our life. Every day. You know, most of us have a a pattern or a a, um, structure to our day that helps us get through the day. Right? We get out of bed about the same time every morning. We go into the bathroom, wash, brush our teeth, comb your hair, put on your makeup, get your cup of coffee. You have a routine. And you know, it's amazing how if you mess up with somebody's routine, you ruin their whole day. By the way, I know the coffee comes first for some of you. I get it. (laughs) But we have this routine. And when our routine gets messed up, our whole day just kind of goes in different directions. And by the time night comes, you go, geez, I hope I don't have another day like today. What happened? My routine got all messed up. All these surprises popped in. We have a routine, but really not much of one when it comes to our spiritual life. He talks about a rule of life. And the rule, the word rule might have turned some of us off just like that. Don't let that happen. Okay? Don't let the rebellious spirit... Take control of your thoughts for a moment. But the rule, the word rule, um, what what slide we got up there? There we go. It's translated from the Hebrew word, and and there is an Arabic Arabic, uh, definition too. But it basically, when you look at the meaning, it means a straight read or like a straight stick, uh, a rule, a standard of faith or living. It's a boundary. It's actually the word that we get our word trellis from. You all know what a trellis looks like, right? Well, it could have come in a different picture in everybody's mind because a trellis is just simply something that gives structure to a plant. And in Bible times, it was primarily used in the vineyards. And if you go to a vineyard or drive by a vineyard now, you'll see some sort of trellis that maybe just posts and wire. In your yards, you might use trellises for flowers. In your gardens, you might use it for peas or cucumbers. And the trellis can take an amazing number of shapes. Whatever shape you want to make it. It can be very unique. We need to have a trellis, a rule of life in our life. And every one of them is going to be unique depending upon you and your personality, your schedule, your day. But the bottom line is we need one in our spiritual life. A rule of life. It's an intentional plan. Now some of you are pretty good at this. Some of you are way better at this than I am. You have a structured time of devotion meditation, reading of the Word. And you'll even stop yourselves, many of you, during the day just to take a moment to reflect on God, your life, His blessings. And in the evening, again, you might take another time and and you have a structured time. But whatever it is, you have a structure, you have a pattern, there's a discipline to it. 
And at the very least, what it does, it draws our attention away from the busyness of the day, away from all the things that are distracting us, all those things that are sucking the life out of most of us, and causes us to refocus on God. And by the time, if we've got some good structure to it, by the time we're, we're running a little bit low, we're down to a quarter tank, we stop. Get refreshed. Get filled up. Go back to our day, and the same thing repeats. And for some of us, we probably need four or five of those stops a day, maybe more. Maybe some of us can get by with one or two. But they can be unique, but they need to be there. It's an intentional plan to keep God at the center of everything that we do. That's what we're supposed to do. That doesn't mean you have to walk around preaching Jesus to everybody you meet 24-7. But he needs to be the focus of everything you do. A stressful thing comes up. God, give me the grace to accomplish this. Fear and worry start to come. God, fill me with your peace. Let me be filled with your peace in the midst of this storm that they might see me in a place of peace and that I can give you glory. So he stays the focus, whatever it looks like, in our lives. And as I said, it can be so unique. So I'm not trying to tell anybody how to do it. Um, I need to do it better in my own life. Why would I tell you? But we need to have one. And no matter how different it might be, it needs to be something that will keep us focused. Focused. That word just kept coming up in my mind as I was working on this sermon and even as we were singing this morning as I was praying and, and during the worship. Focus. Help me focus. My mind is like out of control. It's not necessarily thinking about bad or evil things. It's just racing all over the place. And I just like, focus. Help me focus. We need a plan, a rule of life that will help us to focus. Maybe Christian music's part of your plan. Flipping on some praise and worship just during your lunch break. It, whatever it is. But it needs to be intentional. It needs to accomplish where we have this, this, this structured time. Now for a lot of us, if it's just church on Sunday, it isn't going to be enough. It isn't going to be enough. If it isn't that prayer, if it's only the prayer over your meal and a prayer before you go to bed, it probably isn't going to be enough. You know, we've, we've, we've got Sunday church services, we've got Sunday schools, we've got life groups, we've got Bible studies. All of those things are good, and all of those things might be part of your rule of life. But there needs to be that time where it's just you and God. Not you and God and 28 other people. Or 150 people. That time where it's you and God so you can get quiet and listen. And this morning, it was just all I could do to control my thoughts and focus. I couldn't focus during pre-service prayer. I couldn't hardly focus during praise and worship. And a couple of elders and Pastor Bob came and prayed for me and a word of knowledge from Glenn and it was exactly right on what I had been praying. God knows what we need and He wants to provide it for us. And He'll do what it takes as long as we cooperate. He will not overrule us. He's not going to take control of us. We're not robots. But he's waiting and ready. When we talk about his presence, as I was singing, oh Lord, your presence. And, and I'm thinking, and, and I may be assuming wrongly, but I'm thinking there's probably some people in here sitting there thinking those words or at least listening to those words going, I don't get it. They're all talking about this presence of God. What is it? 
I've never experienced it in my life. Now that's really, really sad. Because if we're a Christian, if we've truly accepted Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit lives in us. He's constantly present in our life. But the better we get to know Him, the more time we spend with Him, the more we know about Him, that intimacy gets greater and greater, and all of a sudden we realize He is there just like He promises in His Word. That He'll never leave you nor forsake you becomes more than a cute phrase. It's reality. He's there with me. And I was thinking even in the natural, how sometimes you can go into a place and there only might be a few people there, and, and if I don't know them very well, and I leave the room and somebody said, could you tell me how many people were in there and what they look like? I'd go, ah, are you kidding me? Or I might run into someone and say, hey, remember the other night I was there. Did you see me? Were you there? No. I didn't even recognize you were there. Well, you even said hi to me. Jeez, I'm really sorry. But I didn't even remember you. Sometimes our relationship with God is like that. If he's always there, the problem isn't getting him to relocate, is it? He's there. The problem is readdressing my focus and my attentions so that Jesus is the, the center of everything in my life. And this really becomes the big question. Is my relationship, is my rule of life, is my plan enough to keep me afloat in the sea of evil that's out there in the world? Did you put up that slide, Mike? Yeah. I look at that and I think, you know, the world is getting darker and darker and darker. And sometimes it doesn't even feel like we've got a sail on our little boat. We're in a life raft, just trying to not drown in the world. It's so enticing. It looks so pleasurable. And our flesh is starting to stir and, and we're getting bombarded with information, education, all of these things. Can we stay afloat? Well, as busy as our world is, as busy as your life is, as isolated as we can feel at times, as evil as our culture is, Satan, all of those things have been around for a long, 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 long time. Did you know that? We're not unique today. I'm going to look at Daniel for just a few minutes. The book of Daniel. And I'm just going to hit, uh, highlight a few points in Daniel's life. In the book of Daniel, most of the time when we think of Daniel, we, we, we think a lot about the prophetic stuff that's in there. But the first six chapters or so give a great picture, I believe, of how a person whose life is focused and steadied on Jesus, on God, on God, can stay true no matter what comes. It starts out in chapter 1, and I'll read a few verses in just a minute, but to give you just a tiny background, Nebuchadnezzar was king of the Babylonian Empire. And they were the power of the world, and they went to Jerusalem and took it under siege. They were trying to conquer. And they did. Nebuchadnezzar came, and he conquered Jerusalem. And it says that he took back a lot of the implements, even from their temple, back to their idols' temples. But what we want to really focus on here today is he also took most of the inhabitants back as slaves. And part of that group of inhabitants that he took back as slaves was some of the royalty, the more highly educated, those that came from families of leadership. 
And Daniel was part of that group. And it appears we don't know for sure how old Daniel was, but it seems he was a young man, older boy, not very old. And think about this for a moment. If you or I were 14, 15, 16, 18, whatever, and we're taken and we're plucked from our home, from our culture, separated from our family, we're taken into a country where the culture is totally different, it's totally pagan, idol worship everywhere, their worldview is totally different, I don't even speak their language, and we're supposed to hang on. And then suppose, as is the case of Daniel and some of his friends, they have favor. The king. The king looks on them and he has a plan for them. And I want to start by reading just a few verses in in chapter 1 of Daniel, uh, starting at verse 3. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, orders Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, his people, the Babylonians. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. And he appointed that they should be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Verse 8 says this, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. They are taken captive. They're brought back to Babylon. And their king is going to do everything he can to assimilate them into the culture and people of Babylon. He's trying to blot out and wipe away any remnant of their Jewish culture. They're going to teach them all of the arts, all of the sciences, all of the astronomy, all of the myths, all of the sorcery, all of the magic, everything they can from the pagan world view. Teach them the language to remove their language. And then to take it further than that even, he said, we're even going to take your names from you and you're no longer going to be Daniel. You're going to become Belteshazzar. He was taking away, they were taken from their family, their teachers, everything that they had in their homeland and dumped in this new situation. As scared as they might be, all of a sudden, the king has favor on them. I mean, there was a lot of the the exiles from Judah and from Jerusalem that were captives that were stuck with really crummy work. Slaves. And here Daniel and his three friends are selected to be some of the elite. So even though they were in a horrible situation, they had an opportunity to live pretty doggone good. 
They were going to get some of the king's food from the king's table, the best meats, the finest wines. They were going to get the educated in the greatest university of all of Babylon by the greatest teachers they had so they could excel and be leaders and servants in the king's court, his palace. Boy, that's tempting and enticing if I'm a captive. Babylon is a picture of evil in the world. It's a picture of Satan's kingdom, if you would. To me, I'm looking at this story and I'm thinking, boy, oh boy, it sounds like the world I live in. We are here in our little community of of believers, and it's pretty safe. We we all sort of understand and talk sort of the same way. We kind of get it. We kind of think alike. We can have a fellowship dinner and we all go, yeah, the food is great. Everything looks and is familiar. And then there's the world out there that's telling us everything you and I believe as Christians is ridiculous. It's a fairy tale. You're a fool. You're an idiot. You're a mind-numbed robot. You're an intolerant loser. How can you be so stupid? Look at the pleasures the world has to offer you. Why wouldn't you take it and embrace it? Just join the world. Be like the world. Seek after wealth and fame and sexual pleasures, all of the lusts of the flesh. Seek after all that stuff. You have the potential to be a big shot in the world. Instead, you're going to be a Christian and try to glorify God. That doesn't mean you can't be successful. It doesn't mean you can't be happy. It can't, doesn't mean any of that. It just means, what is our focus going to be? Daniel was faced with this choice. And in verse 8 it said, he made up his mind. He wasn't going to defile himself. And it strikes me with the name changes, how, how complete they were trying to make it. You know, Daniel's name meant, God is my judge. And if you remember in the Jewish culture, names were significant. And also in the Babylonian culture, names were significant. So they took God as my judge, Daniel, and said, that's not who you are anymore, you're Belteshazzar which means Bell's Bell's prince, or he whom Bell favors. Bell, B-E-L. Bell was their primary god, their primary idol. Forget the god of the Jews. You are now Belteshazzar. Hananiah meant whom Jehovah has graciously given in the Jewish culture. He says, you're not Hananiah anymore. You're Shadrach. You're a young friend of the king. Not the king of kings, but the king of Babylon. Mishael, whose name means one who comes from God, becomes Meshach, one who belongs to the goddess Shishak. And Azariah, whose name means whom Jehovah helps, to Abednego, meaning servant of Nebo, the morning star. Total annihilation of who they were and total assimilation of what the world wanted them to be, the king. For us, we face a similar temptation. The temptation of pleasures, the best that the world has to offer to the flesh, it can be a powerful snare. It's really attractive. My flesh loves most of what the world has to offer. I don't know about yours. But if I look at it just in the flesh, I, I, I like that stuff. I'd want that stuff. I hope you've discovered sin is usually pretty fun for a while. And then the consequences are overwhelming. If we let our flesh lead us, we will jump into the world just as Daniel had the opportunity to do. But unless we have a plan to make sure that Jesus Christ stays the center and the focus of our life, we may make that mistake. Or we can say, you know what? 
I am not going to allow the enemy to draw me away from God. Daniel faces a couple more major tests in the the first six chapters, and I'm not going to read a lot of Scripture. We could never cover it all. It's a great story if you want to read it. I'd encourage you to, you, you too. But he faces another challenge. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. By this time, Daniel and his friends have earned great reputations, especially Daniel. And he is part of the group of people that the king looks to along with his other seers and magicians and sorcerers. You know, the Babylonians probably knew and had heard about prophets in the Jewish people, how they could predict future events. They could just kind of fold that right into their sorcerers and magicians and seers. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. I won't go into the dream, but he had this dream. And he wanted his people to interpret that dream. So he brings in all his wise men, his seers and magicians, magicians and sorcerers, and he says, tell me my dream and tell me what it means, and no one could do it. And he got so frustrated and he got so angry and so mad that all of his seers and magicians couldn't tell him his dream and couldn't tell him what it meant. He said, gather them all together, all the wise men in the kingdom, and let's kill them, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Bad day for Daniel. He's facing the threat of death. What does he do when the pressure's really on? What does he do when he feels like everything is out of his control? What does he do when, when there's danger right there lurking? You know, we have similar situations, probably not quite as serious as facing an execution, but we come to that same place where what do we do? Where do we turn? All of our natural wisdom isn't working. What do we do? Daniel said, what's going on? He says, the king has a dream. No one can interpret it. We're going to kill all you guys. And he says, he goes to the king. He has favor. He goes to the king and says, oh, king, what's the problem? And he says, you know the problem. Nobody, blah, blah, blah. Daniel says, you know what? Give me some time. And let me go to get back with my friends. And we're going to pray. We're going to pray to God, our God, and see if our God could give us an answer. So he gets together with his friends and they pray. And God reveals the dream to them. Not only does he reveal the dream to them, he reveals the meaning of the dream to them. And Daniel goes back and he tells the king, O king, honoring the authority that there was there, O king, I have the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And the king says, please, tell me. And he tells him. And he goes through the whole interpretation of the dream. And it's in great detail. Read it. It's amazing. No man could have made up this dream. And the king goes, wow, I'm paraphrasing here. Wow, Daniel, you are the man. You're amazing. I'm going to give you more responsibility, more power, more authority. And Daniel says, O king, no man could have told you what I've just told you. What I've just told you came from my God, the one and only God. He gets all the glory and all the honor. So not only does he not panic and freak out when he's threatened in this time of testing, facing imminent death at the hand of the king's executioner, 
He not only has the, the wherewithal or the, the foundation to say, wait a minute, let me go pray. Let's pray. I can't do anything, but God can. The all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere-present God of the universe has an answer to this problem. You know, when you read the story, you don't even hear a hint of fear or worry in Daniel. There's so much faith. They have so much faith in their God. And not just Daniel. As you read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you may be familiar with the Bible story about the three guys in the furnace. That's them. They had such faith based on a foundation. They had such faith that says, Oh, king, you can throw us in the fiery furnace, but our God can stop you anytime he wants. But if he doesn't, we will still serve our God. Faith in the face of all kinds of challenges. What do we do when we're faced with that kind of thing? When you don't know where to go and you don't know where to turn. It should be as natural as breathing for us if Jesus Christ is the primary emphasis in our lives that we go to God. Go to Him. Go to that all-knowing, all-powerful God who has promised you He will never leave you nor forsake you. And because you're His children, He has said, I will do you nothing but good things, things that are good for you even though we don't get it. And the last story I want to mention about Daniel is in chapter 6. And then there's a new king, Darius or Darius, depending how you pronounce it. By this time, Daniel is one of the most powerful and influential men in all of Babylon. Imagine that. Reminds you of the story of Joseph in Egypt. Here's Daniel, and he's in this position of influence. And guess what? All the Babylonian peers of his, the other wise men, the educated men, the seers and the magicians, are getting really sick and tired of him being who he is. They are jealous of him. And then there's a really telling verse. As they're plotting, trying to figure out, how do we get this guy? How do we destroy his favor with the king? How do we knock him down off this pedestal he seems to be on? And they can't come up with anything except this. If we can come up with something that would cause him to have to violate God's law, we'll get him. Because he won't. In that verse, I see here he has been given authority and power, favor with the king, now another king, And yet all the people still knew and understood his God came first. They knew that they weren't going to be able to set him up unless they could figure out a way to trap him. That the only way he could follow the king's edict was to violate God's law. And they knew they'd have him because they knew he wouldn't do it. Because way back in chapter 1, when they were first brought into Babylon, and they had the opportunity to eat the king's food, drink the king's wine, he purposed in his heart, there is nothing I'm going to do that's going to cause me to, to, to deny my God. So here in, in the, with Darius, they come up with this idea and they go to the king and they say, oh king, you're so amazing. I'm, I'm paraphrasing again. You're, you're, this is a Nelson version. It's kind of like the message you're amplified. <laughs> kind of. 
They says, oh, king, you're so amazing, and you're so wonderful, you're so powerful, you're so glorious. Nobody should pray to any god for the next month except you. You're the only god. Forget all the other idols. Forget all the other gods of Babylon. Just you for the next 30 days. And the king goes, yeah, I'm pretty cool. I think that's a good rule. And he writes out an edict and says, that any man who worships anybody other than me will be thrown in the lion's den and killed. And then it says this in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. I love this. Now, when Daniel knew what the king's edict was, it's like, okay, king, in your face. When he knew the document was signed, he entered into his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. They had him because they knew he wouldn't deny his faith. He wasn't going to compromise. He wasn't going to give in. He prayed, and of course they were waiting for him to pray because he did it every day, three times. There was at least three times a day they knew exactly where to find Daniel. It was such a rule of life in Daniel's life that they knew he's going to be praying to his God. He's going to be focusing on his God to get him through the day, to get him through the trials, the responsibilities. Can you imagine the responsibilities he had? He was going to focus on God. So they knew and they found him. They watched and they went to the king and as little tattletales and said, O king, remember that edict you wrote? Somebody broke it. What should we do with him? And the king is offended. He can't believe somebody be that bold. And he says, kill him. Throw him in the lion's den. <clears throat> and they said, oh, by the way, king, it's Daniel. And Darius was upset because he admired Daniel. He respected Daniel. He knew Daniel was a man of honesty and integrity that he could always trust. But he was trapped by his own edict. And most of you know the story, but if you don't, read it. It's great. They take Daniel to the lion's den and throw him in. And the king has a miserable night. He's tormented by the fact that he had to throw his trusted Jewish slave who he had elevated to this position of authority in to be devoured by the lions. And it says first thing in the morning he got up and he went to the lion's den. And he cries out to Daniel. Now think about that. He threw him in the den with a whole bunch of lions and yet he goes there and calls on Daniel. I think that king had a, a respect for his God in spite of his pagan life. Why would he have called out his name? And of course we know the story that Daniel was saved from the lions by his God. And his accusers well, the lions were still hungry. So it fed them. All the accusers were thrown in. Now you and I probably <clears throat> aren't going to have to face a lion's den. But we are going to be continually challenged by our Babylon, the world around us, our culture, by the enemy, to deny Christ, to deny our God. And it's happening already. I hope you're aware, I hope you're aware enough 
I don't want anybody to get too, too immersed in our news. It'll just destroy you. But I hope you're aware enough to know this is happening all over. You know, as we send our college, high school graduates away to college, they're going to face it for sure, as we all will eventually. One story, Ryan Rotella. He was a college student down at Florida Atlantic University. You might have read about it. It's not that long ago. In one of his enlightened classes by one of his brilliant professors, they were going to do an exercise. He made him write down the name of Jesus because he knew he believed in Jesus. He made him write down the name of Jesus on a piece of paper and tape it to the floor, and then his instructions were to go over and stomp on it to degrade whatever it is he wrote on the paper. Well, he wouldn't do it. And you'd think in our age of enlightenment and tolerance in our wonderful universities, they'd have said, hey, he doesn't have to do that if he doesn't want to. We've got to tolerate every faith. No, they suspended him from school because he wouldn't degrade the name of Jesus by stomping on it in a classroom full of students. He's suspended from school. We're going to get challenged more and more and more as that sea of evil out there called Babylon creeps up on us. We need to realize that's what we live in. And we need to realize that our faith is not going to remain strong unless there's some intention, attention given to it in a very intentional way to continue to feed it and stay in relationship with Christ. The goal of Babylon was to eliminate Daniel's faith, eliminate his culture, eliminate all he had known, and assimilate him into the culture of Babylon. That is the plan of the enemy, Satan. He would love to take every single one of us and our children and cause us to be assimilated into the culture that we live in. Because the culture tells us, if you want to be somebody, you better join the party and get busy. Why deny yourselves the pleasures of all that our culture has to offer you? For some stupid fairy tale called Christianity. That's what we're facing. That's what our kids are going to face and are facing. And it's only going to intensify. Some of you younger people talk to some of us older people. We can't believe how far it's came in 20 years. You may not even be 20 yet and think that's an eternity. Believe me, it'll go that fast. And where it's went in the last 20 years, I, can't, I, I hate to think where it'll be should the Lord tarry in 10 more. We know that Daniel, he may not have called it this, but that rule of life, he had one. We didn't get to see all the specifics of his rule of life, but we can see some in the picture. Obviously, he had a prayer life. Obviously, there was a foundation laid in the very beginning that he had determined he was not going to break God's law to dishonor God. And who knows what else when his Jewish friends would be together. There are times of meditation, but he had something. He prayed three times a day. Can you imagine if we would just take out and carve out ten minutes three times a day? Just stop everything that you're doing for ten minutes three times a day. How much more in focus God would be. How much more at peace you and I would be. How much more difficult it would be for the enemy to catch us in one of his snares and traps and drag us into Babylon. It may take more than three for some of us. 
And I don't know what they all look like for any of us because we're all so uniquely different. But I would encourage you to consider what do I need to do to establish a rule in my life in my spiritual walk with the Lord? You know, God knows where you're at. It was driven home to me again this morning. Right here. You may or may not saw, I don't know, but during worship, the second or third song, I just had to kneel and pray. And it wasn't a very spiritual prayer. Here's how I started it. God, here I am again, feeling like an empty vessel. And in a few minutes, I've got to go in front of this congregation and they expect me to feed them. I feel empty. I can't focus. Help me. The very next song, <clears throat> Glenn comes up to me and says, Mike, I think I have a word for the, from the Lord for you. And he proceeds to share with me the Lord's answer to my problem. And then when he finishes, Pastor Bob prays prophetically, whether he knows it or not, over me, right in tune with what I'm thinking. And I tell you this just to encourage you. God knows what we're all going through. And he has the answer. He has the answer. But you know what? I've got to spend more time with him so that I know what he has for me. So that we are connected. I can't let the world and all the business of the world, I can't even let the, the calling on my life and the ministry that he's called me to get in the way of that. Which was prayed over me this morning. We can be busy doing good things for the Lord and yet we're drawing, being drawn away. You know, if Satan can't catch you with something evil, he'll take something good and tie you up in it so tight you can hardly move. And if you haven't noticed that, it's true. Well, I didn't know how to end this anyway, so <laughs> I want to pray. I want to ask you to just stand with me if you would. And I just want to encourage you, as we were singing these songs this morning, to me it was like song after song was challenging me. Started with, you won't relent. You know, he's not going to give up on you or me. He, he wants us to press in, to discover who he is. And then we sang about Jesus the Messiah. Yeah, that's who he is. Our Savior and Deliverer. It's all about you and stir in me. And the list just went on. I'm thinking, okay, God, I think I'm getting it. But the question is, what will I do about it? I can get it here this morning. I can understand it right now. But will I leave this place and do anything different tomorrow and next week? And that's what I felt to challenge us. Right now, in your own heart, if you know that you're not at that place you should be, if you know that, you know, we cry out for God, help me, God show me, God reveal me, reveal to me. And he's just sitting there saying, well, I've been here all along. How much time are you spending with me? Get to know him. Uh, another sermon. Let's pray. 
God, I pray right now that you would search every single one of our hearts here. Lord, I, I believe I'm not the only one that feels dry and empty at times. Lord, I believe I'm not the only one here that needs to develop a better rule of life when it comes to intentionally focusing on keeping you at the center of all things. Lord, I pray you would help each one of us in our uniqueness, our personalities, our different callings to work and all of these things that are so uniquely different that we would develop a unique trellis that works for us. God, that trellis for the grapes helps it to grow straight and bear much more fruit and be more productive. God, that we would put in place a structure that would help us to bear much more fruit and be much more productive. But even that the fruit and the productivity would not become the goal, just knowing you. So Lord, I pray you would search each one of our hearts this morning. God, even as we're conversing with you individually as I'm speaking, bring us to that place where we believe enough to take action. God, we ask all these things that you'd receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Lord, we bless you and bless each one as we go our separate ways, pray traveling mercies over so many who are traveling this Memorial Day weekend. And we do play a blessing on all of our veterans for their service and sacrifice. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.